The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine featuring topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month, ACB President Kim Charlson has issued a statement regarding the importance of Braille to people who are blind. Meet advocacy and outreach specialist Claire Stanley and learn about a new ACB podcast. Tony Stevens reminds us that the Supreme Court nomination is not the only thing happening in Congress. And will Helen Keller be expelled from Texas schools? Welcome to ACB Reports for October 2018. Following an opinion piece alleging a comment President Trump made several decades ago that denied the importance of Braille and the dignity of people who are blind, American Council of the Blind President Kim Charlson released this statement on the importance of Braille. Our nation's core values are rooted in the belief that each and every person has the opportunity to rise to the highest level. The American Council of the Blind believes that laws like the Americans with Disabilities Act are intended to create an equal playing field for all Americans, regardless of their abilities. Because of this, our nation has made great strides forward for inclusion of people with disabilities, including those who are blind or visually impaired. Government building standards have allowed wheelchair users access to restrooms, people who are deaf to know when fire alarms are sounding through flashing lights, and have made it possible for those who are blind or visually impaired to locate specific rooms in buildings or the correct button to press in an elevator to get to the desired floor in a high-rise building through braille and raised print signage. This relatively inexpensive accommodation assures that people who are blind or have low vision can independently navigate in places like hotels, apartments, or government buildings. With this in mind, ACB is hopeful that all elected officials will come to realize the importance of such building standards and why they exist. This statement from ACB President Kim Charlson was transmitted on September 15th. You're listening to ACB Reports. Tony Stevens, Director of Advocacy and Government Affairs for the American Council of the Blind, will join us in a moment to discuss important pending legislation. But first, we say hello for the first time to Claire Stanley, the new Advocacy and Outreach Specialist for ACB. I'm Claire, and I'm the Advocacy and Outreach Specialist, so I get to work very closely with Tony. It's a good thing, I promise. And um, I get to do a little bit of a few things. I get to work on direct calls that come in, so helping people kind of figure out what their next steps should be with any problems they're dealing with, you know, pointing them in the right direction for services or resources. Um, and helping any way we can. I'm also getting to do a lot of work with Tony through the Consortium of Citizens with Disabilities, so working with other organizations um, on behalf of other disability communities, um, doing a lot of work with Congress, and either um, helping support different pieces of legislation or saying, please don't support pieces of legislation, um, so a lot of advocacy on the Hill as well. And we'll talk more about your new project here in just a few minutes, uh, but first of all, Tony, Washington is always busy, but it seems like this time of the year with the uh, new fiscal year starting, the old one wrapping up, and this year we have the uh, Supreme Court nominee thrown into that mix. It's got to be crazy up there. It is not a dull moment, Mike, I'll tell you that. We went into August thinking typically in Washington, D.C., August is when everybody kind of puts their polo shirt on instead of a button down and kind of dresses down and enjoys 
being slow. Pretty much since August, it has been very busy. The Senate stayed in session in August to work on budgetary issues, and all of that has culminated to, folks may know, that the federal government works on a fiscal year that starts October 1st. So we are, on September 30th, ending the 2018 federal cycle, and the clock starts over again. All the money needs to be there. If there's no money that's been approved by Congress, we go into furloughs or shutdowns or slowdowns, depending on how the funding has already been allocated. Uh, you know, everything on the radar now has been that the overwhelming majority will be operating. Government will be open for business on Monday, but we are still waiting, though, to see. I mean, not everything is in stone yet as this drops with only just a couple of days left in September. But for the most part, we'll probably have a continuing resolution, which is where, and based on even that, not just a continuing resolution, but what we've seen for federal spending for 2019, Everything's kind of flatlined. It's kind of level spending, no major increases, no major decreases. There might be little small number changes, but for the most part, everything was kind of dead on with what I saw from the prior year. So that's going to tell us that, you know, we're, we're going to have larger conversations next year around revenue and spending. But for now, we're going into where Congress will be going into recess for most of October because of the mid-year elections that are going to take place in November. So the House of Representatives will be back home campaigning. Uh, but the Senate, you know, has been working nonstop in the news cycle, at least around the Supreme Court nomination, which has been sort of a distraction because at the same time, there's a lot of stuff that's been going on behind the scenes in Congress. Not so much, you know, usually it would be in front of the scenes, but I think because of the court nomination, uh, it's gotten so much media attention. The rest of Congress is still working through trying to get budgets passed. There's been the FAA reauthorization, uh, had some stuff of interest for people with disabilities, for those that fly has some interesting things in, a, in an agreement between the House and the Senate that will create like a passenger's bill of rights for passengers with disabilities particularly that will help in providing extra training and, and recognizing that there are structural barriers but also human barriers sometimes in going through airports and working to try to do better training of gate agents and attendants that help you to the gate and those kind of things. Uh, there's a few things on service animals, but nothing, the service animal language in the FAA reauthorization is nothing really new. Uh, they're kind of authorizing what's already started to take place in the Department of Transportation with the rulemaking proceedings, where they are going to change the regulations around not so much service animals, but everything we've heard is more around emotional support animals. So no major concerns for guide dogs, even though it, it pops up on radar. Uh, everything we've heard from both folks up on the Hill and also in the Department of Transportation is not to worry too much about that. But, yeah, it's all kind of it's all kind of pushed into one compressed week of everything trying to get passed through. And so it's been very, very lively, we'll call it, up here on Capitol Hill. You wrote a piece on autonomous vehicles. Uh, is there something moving on that? No pun intended. <laughs> no, none taken. So we've been working a lot with the tech and, and auto manufacturers on making sure that where the AV revolution, autonomous vehicle revolution is going, is going to be accessible and, and not leave us on the sidelines or on the side of the road, as it were, pardon another pun. But, you know, essentially, there's a thing called the AV Start Act, and that was, we thought we'd get into the FAA reauthorization because they're both under the same committee that handles transportation. We have not seen that come through yet. So we're still sort of waiting on the sidelines to see if, if the Senate is still Technically, you know, they, they tend to be in session a little bit longer during these recesses or work more during the recesses than the House. We know the House will be mostly out campaigning, but only a third of the Senate is. So there's still a chance that the Senate could move on this. And there's two things in the bill that we found particularly of interest. I mean, on, on, first off, 
you know, and this is on a personal note too, because I've been myself hit by cars three times. We have the opportunity to make significant improvements in pedestrian safety around autonomous vehicles. And so one of the things we're trying to work on with the AV industries is how we can leverage that to make sure that remains a priority for industry. Pedestrian and traffic safety so that we can curtail the 6,000 deaths a year that are pedestrians and the, you know, roughly 40,000 people overall that are killed because of cars. So within the bill, though, there's two things for people with disabilities that are interested. One, it's going to create a, a working group within Department of Transportation that will focus on all kinds of things. But one of those things at the table that's supposed to be there is going to be talking about accessibility. So it will allow us to work in, in the same way we've worked in other advisory committees for the federal government. We've made great progress, really more so just in partnering and, and having opportunities to engage with industries, open doors for us, and similar advisory committees. We hope that will be the same for this one. And the other thing is, too, it will provide protections around uh, guaranteeing our right to operate vehicles because technically, you know, once we get to level what's called four and five of autonomous vehicles, there's no more pedals, there's no more steering wheels, so really there's no more operators. We want to make sure that some states have been trying to curtail, saying you need to have, like, vision tests, and we, we totally agree that if there's still a human that needs to control the vehicle sometime, I, myself, am not going to be the best driver. I'll guarantee you that. And so, you know, I think it's a concern of ours, though, that some of these state laws that have been going around have potentially been setting it up for once we do get to autonomous vehicles, you know, it might actually shut someone out from having one of these if they're blind because they don't pass the traditional vision test. But we know with folks, some folks that just have low vision, maybe not legally blind, these monoculars, you know, there, there are ways to leverage different types of technologies and to, to be able to use motor vehicles. So we're engaging in that area, and we think this ADA protection legislation and the AV Start Act is also a benefit. So that's been kind of the reasons why we've been supporting this piece of legislation. The ADA protection legislation that you mentioned, what is that doing? In the AV Start Act, it basically says anybody that is guaranteed protections under the ADA cannot be discriminated against in this sort of new space of autonomous vehicles. You can't design a car and say, you don't get this vehicle because you have a disability, right? You can't operate this. And once we're at a level four or five, again, it's not so much operating. I mean, if the technology is accessible, uh, there's no reason why someone that's blind, uh, you know, I mean, there's going to be all kinds of people that can't drive a car now that will benefit from AV. So that's that's the ADA protection in that AV Start Act. It goes amidst the, a larger conversation we've been having, and these are some other things that have been on the news over this year, when I think that just the year about, you know, how the ADA has been challenged somewhat in the, in the Congress by the House passed a, a bill, the ADA Education Reform Act, back in the late winter. And that was, you know, something that, that hasn't really gained too much traction right now. There actually was a bill that Senator Duckworth from Illinois, and I don't remember, I don't, I don't even know if it had a bill number when we learned it was going to be dropped yet in the Senate, that would create incentives behind uh, ADA modifications. So if you're a business, it would create a small business like credit, or you know, I don't even know if it's just for small business, but you would get a credit uh, to make your work site or your place, your office or your store accessible, and that would be a big benefit, I think, in a lot of ways because we also believe that can tie into like web accessibility and stuff. Like that, so it's sort of a, a accessibility incentives act, and that's by Senator Duckworth, and that just got dropped a couple of days ago. That's something we're watching and, and hoping to get into her office and some other Senate offices to discuss. So, so we're not likely to see any movement on that until next session, probably, right? So much is going to depend on the election, you know. And her bill actually is kind of an it's kind of a bipartisan message in the sense that the chambers of commerce are not against any kind of tax credit. So, you know, as far as it goes with, with her bill, you know, there is a sense there could get some bipartisan support. But for the most part, when we come out of election, uh, it's, it's hit or miss as to what's going to get passed. 
But it's, it's a good bill at a time when there's been not so good bills about the ADA. So we hope that this can sort of be a benchmark for the 116th Congress as to, hey, here's some thoughts about these ADA complaints that we think businesses come out a winner, people with disabilities come out a winner. So that's kind of where we're at with that bill. Something that has been really big for ACB is the Marrakesh Treaty dealing with the circulation, international circulation of reading material in specialized formats, including textbooks, library books, etc. That treaty was uh, ratified by the Senate, I believe, back in June, and uh, then just recently it has passed the House. What's the next step for that? Thanks for saving the best for last, because we were really excited. For nine years now, it's been an issue that Eric Bridges, my predecessor, who's now our executive director, was very much working on going to Geneva. We did a whole Facebook Live video for folks that subscribe to our Facebook feed. You should check it out. It's very interesting, just about the history alone. But as it stands now, it was ratified by the Senate, but then there still needed to be some copyright law that was just tweaked a little under what's called the Chafee Amendment. For those taking notes, the Chafee Amendment is really how we get like the National Library Services and books on talking books and all those things, free for the blind and physically handicapped or you know people with physical disabilities, but as, as it still is called in NLS. So we are very, very excited because the next step is, is the president signs it and, it and it becomes a ratified treaty. We will be the 42nd country. And it'll be an excellent opportunity, you know, for us to just sort of, when it comes to the shortage of accessible media around the world, I think the USA can have a, a large role to play to really help gain access to accessible materials globally. And our hope is it's not just something that we, when we're abroad, can get access to materials without copyright constraints if I'm a student in Paris, let's say, from the U.S. But, you know, overall, it's something that's going to make a global impact on the fact that only around 5% of the material in the world is accessible right now. So imagine that 95%, that watershed of, of knowledge and information and entertainment and, and just things of, of written wonderment that exist out there. So we're very excited about that. So what will happen is hopefully the president will sign it sometime sooner than later. We've reached out to the White House and are trying to get a date on that, and we'll let folks know when we find that out. Do you have an indication as to whether or not he will sign it? We don't see any opposition. The bill in the Senate and the House, 435, we'll drop a couple because Senator McCain was out before he passed away. Not everybody was there, but of the 430, let's say, members of Congress and the House and the Senate, zero objection. Unanimous consent in both chambers of Congress. Uh, it's a win-win piece of legislation. The publishers came in on it, the libraries came in on it, we came in on it, and we all met in the middle. So it was a true sense of compromise. You don't see a lot these days. I don't see an issue. We've heard no issue of the president not wanting to sign it. I think it'll be something that'll be a reason to celebrate. And, and it's also a no cost or at least a low cost other than the process of rewriting the regs or whatever. There's not much money to spend on it as far as it, it doesn't demand the spending of a lot of money. No, and, and you know, I mean, if it would have cost money, the publishers would have never come as far as they did. And I think all of us realize that it's kind of a human right, access to knowledge, right? And so in that sense, uh, you know, it was something that we were able to reach consensus. And that we, we had very conservative members of the Senate that were very well behind this piece of legislation and, and helped shepherd it through. So it, in no way, even though it's a treaty, which sometimes gets partisan, it was not a partisan issue at all. So we're very excited about that. Hopefully, as you said, sooner than later, President Trump will indeed sign it, and I'm sure you'll be uh, letting us know when that's going to occur. 
folks that haven't subscribed to ACB announce list on our website, please, if you have access to the web, www.acb.org, and, and make sure you're on our announce list because that's where we send out those kind of action alerts. Or the Facebook page. Or the Facebook page. <laughs> yeah. They can't follow us on American Council of the Blind on Facebook and ACB National on Twitter. And something else, and in fact, I learned about this from the Facebook page the other day. A new podcast that is uh, being launched this week was the first one. Claire, I believe that's something that you are involved in. What is this podcast and what is its intent? Something that Tony and I are both working on, um, but who knows, and hopefully we'll have other people jump in like Eric. We're still working on a name, so we keep telling people if you have any suggestions, let us know. But we want to use it as a platform to let ACB members know and really anybody else what we're doing here as the advocacy group at ACB. We want people to know what's going on the Hill, what projects we've been working on, what issues they should be aware of, how they can get involved, how they can contact Congress. We just want to give them kind of an insight into what we're doing. Um, We want people to be aware of what um, is going on here in D.C., here in the Beltway, so they can be better informed, they can get involved, they can be advocates themselves. So we're just kind of opening a window to what Tony and I are working on here so they can know who we are, what we're doing, so they can contact us and say, hey, you know, we have this issue, can you guys work on this as well? So we're just trying to be as transparent as we can and invite people into what we're doing here. So how often will the podcast be released and what is the intended length? So it's going to be a weekly webinar. So every Tuesday we will launch a new episode and it is officially up now through your general iTunes feed. We're working on our name, like I said, but for now you can search ACB Advocacy and it'll pop right up. I did a search just myself and it popped right up really easily. So you can go on any um, just iTunes basic search function and it'll come right up. Um, like I said, we're still looking for a name, so give us suggestions. But again, it'll come out every Tuesday and hopefully for a long, long time to come. Are you trying to stay within a certain time length in terms of how long each individual podcast is, how many minutes? We are kind of um, ranging in the just under a half an hour range right now, in the high 20s to a half an hour, just because we know people want to stay informed about people also, you know, have busy lives and they're active. So it's not too long, but just long enough so you guys can listen in, hear what's going on, and around a half an hour basically is how long it'll be. Well, we look forward to that podcast. I will certainly go and check it out. I just haven't had a chance to do that yet. One other thing that just came to my mind, I saw the other day an opinion piece in the Washington Post that Texas is discussing the removal of a study of Helen Keller from their academic curriculum. What on earth brought that about? You know, like with literature over the years, there's been movements to challenge or put to question maybe certain people throughout history, if they're literary figures or social movement people. Um, You know, Helen Keller was at her time pretty revolutionary. Uh, She was very much a strong feminist and strong labor activist, in addition to her being a strong disability rights advocate. And so, you know, at this time when I think people are taking actions or conversations and things like that, I think it's part of this sort of larger debate of just where our country is right now. My hope is that at the end of the day, there are no greater disability advocates throughout history, just throughout humanity, not just disability advocates, but what can the human spirit lead us to do than Helen Keller? And 
I mean, on so many other levels, I'll turn to you, Claire, too. I mean, just from a, a woman's perspective as well, her role in, in history. Yeah, I mean, she's just such an iconic person. Successful, went to Radcliffe, graduated from, you know, a prestigious school, went on to do so many different advocacy projects and what have you. She's definitely somebody that I look up to as a woman. So, yeah, to take her out of uh, school curriculum, it'd be like taking, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt or someone like that out of the curriculum. So I just don't understand. I actually have a friend um, who's deafblind, and she posted a great response just a couple of days ago saying, you know, this is a woman like me. She's deafblind. She's a woman. Um, my friend went to law school, so, you know, kind of similar backgrounds. And my friend said, why would you take somebody just like me, who there are very, very, very few people like her, why would you take her out of the curriculum? What's that saying to people? So hopefully they'll come to change their point of view on that, we hope, because she's definitely, regardless of where you, you maybe sit in, in agreeing with maybe a person's political ideologies or life, in a sense, uh, you can't question people who climb mountains mm-hmm. and do great things and overcome diversity and adversity in life. And, and I think she is one of those great people throughout history that really is a testament to that. Hopefully she'll still be respected in ways that I think she deserves. That was Tony Stevens, Director of Advocacy and Government Affairs, and Claire Stanley, Advocacy and Outreach Specialist for the American Council of the Blind in Alexandria, Virginia. ACB Reports for October 2018 concludes with this commentary regarding the proposal to remove the study of Helen Keller from Texas schools. Hobbin Germa is a disability rights lawyer, author, and public speaker. Her opinion piece regarding the removal of Helen Keller from the Texas K-12 curriculum was recently published in the Washington Post. Hey, Texas, students need to learn about Helen Keller. Don't remove her. I am deafblind, and I almost missed my first lesson about Helen Keller. In second grade U.S. history, my teacher scheduled Helen Keller's story after a lesson in square dancing. I remember my heart racing as I danced a do-si-do with my not-so-secret crush. So when our teacher told us about Keller, I was not-so-secretly distracted. But throughout my schooling, snippets of Keller's story would come back to me. I would turn to the nearest computer wondering, how did she? In high school, I finally read her books and marveled that she excelled in college before the Americans with Disabilities Act, before digital braille, and, of course, the Internet. She pioneered through the world's unknowns in a way that inspired me as I carved a path for myself. If my school hadn't taught us about Keller, I might have do doed a different direction entirely. When I tell people about the path I did take, law studies at Harvard University, and work as a disability rights advocate, they think back to their own lessons on Keller. Learning her story sparks something students carry with them into adulthood. Last week, the Texas Board of Education took a step to remove Keller from the state's social studies curriculum. The board preliminarily voted to update the K-12 curriculum by eliminating several historical figures, including Keller. Proponents said dropping the Keller lesson would save teachers 40 minutes. The board will make a final decision in November. Spending 40 minutes annually to teach children about Keller is not just worthwhile, but also imperative. The story serves as a gateway to conversations about disability and virtue. 
It introduces students to Braille, a tactile reading method that blind people have used since 1824. Children also learn about American Sign Language, a visual language developed by the deaf community. Keller held her hand over another person's to feel each letter as it was signed, then fingerspelled or voiced her response. She spent her life teaching people about the abilities of people with disabilities. She also advocated for women's rights, racial equality, and workers' advancement. Keller wanted to make the world better for all of us. Keller's story provides an irreplaceable, lifelong lesson of optimism, hard work, and community inclusion. She labored over her studies, learning to read and write in multiple languages. She set high expectations for herself, gaining admission to Radcliffe College, the sister school to Harvard. Her teachers and friends converted books from print to Braille. She developed a community of friends and colleagues who welcomed her, fingerspelling and all. Successful people with disabilities such as Keller foster these inclusive communities. Disability itself is often not a barrier. The biggest barriers exist in the social, physical, and digital environments. The techniques a deaf-blind person uses to navigate those barriers in a sighted, hearing world fascinate students. Whenever I do presentations at schools, students express boundless curiosity about Keller's story. How could she climb a tree? How did she read if she couldn't see? If Texas removes Keller's story from the curriculum, when will non-disabled children learn about disability? Her story is too often the only disability story. Deleting Keller from the curriculum can mean deleting disability from the curriculum. Of course, relying on a single story to represent the disability community is in itself a problem. The disability community is diverse, full of rich stories of talented people improving their communities. Students need to learn more about disability, not less. It touches all of our lives. Our bodies change as we age. Anyone can develop a disability at any point or witness a family member or friend do so. More than 57 million Americans have a disability. We number 1.3 billion worldwide, the largest minority group. Teaching students about disabilities through the stories of people such as Keller prepares them to be better citizens, better friends, and better family members. Keller's optimism, hard work, and commitment to justice inspire them to the same virtues. Texas will make a final decision in November. We have time to educate the state's Board of Education on the importance of keeping Keller in the curriculum. Keller herself would urge people to stay optimistic. She said, optimism is a faith that leads to achievement. Nothing can be done without hope. Keller's words have sparked movements in the past. Why not now? This opinion piece by disability rights attorney Haben Germa recently appeared in the Washington Post. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports. ¶¶